Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at puremtgo.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MDGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com. How's it going, everybody? It is 4.30, Friday afternoon, May the 8th, 2020, and it's time for this week's trip down the homeward path. My name is Adam, and my voice is fading, so I will attempt to do this as not gravelly as possible, but we got what we got as far as my voice goes. So, this week, or for those of you who don't know, before we get into what we're doing this week, uh, this is the homeward path. My name is Adam. I'm a husband, father of three, work a full-time job. I just got done with hour 49 for the week. I'm probably pushing 51. But somehow, someway, we find a way to make the most competitive magic we can work. For me, that means getting a chance to play FNMs. That means making some amount of progress on the arena ladder, which I really haven't been doing this month. That means, you know, playing in local opens, you know, supporting my local game stores, but trying to be as competitive in those events as I can. For you, it may mean something similar. For you, it may mean something with greater aspirations, but still, a lot of my focus is on fundamental and trying to accomplish what we're doing on a limited time budget or a limited financial budget. Either way, that's what we're here for. So, this week, we're talking companions. And it's a little bit of a hot-button topic, so before I dive into what I actually want to talk about, I want to give my stance on companions. I want to let the record show how I feel about the card design and the power level and all of that. Personally, as someone who doesn't hate playing Hearthstone, it's just a time suck away from my you know, ability to play Magic, so... I don't play Hearthstone. It's not that I have any kind of a grudge against the game. It's not that I have any kind of a you know superiority complex when it comes to Magic. I just enjoy playing Magic more. So I play Magic more. Uh, regarding kind of what we do, the, the closest comparison I can draw from Hearthstone to Magic is that Hearthstone had the cards like uh, Baku the Moon Eater and Gen Greymare, both of whom encouraged you to build your decks in a very specific way and in return gave you a power boost. But that power boost was in the form of powering up your hero power, and then there are obviously effects within that game that buff the hero power or give you benefits for using it or refresh it so you can use it multiple times in a turn, so on and so forth. At the end of it, like it ends up being this this whole thing you can build around, and you get that at the start of the game. You, it's not an extra card in your hand. It's not, you know, varying power levels of of abilities based on how you build your deck. It was just kind of like really good from the word go, and then depending on how far you went into it, dictated how much better it got. 
And as the episode title would suggest, uh, toward my feelings regarding these, this is no Baku, my friend. And bonus points if you get that reference, because it's like two of them in one. But I digress. For me, companions, the magic companions are interesting. They're exciting. They create new ways to play magic. And for that, I'm thankful. I like experiencing the game I love in new and interesting ways. It's what keeps things fresh. It allows them to test a design space so they can come back to it with, you know, if they end up overshooting it, like Luris is proving to be very powerful in eternal formats. Uh, Yorion is proving that 20 extra cards can be a benefit, not a detriment. Whatever the case may be, these cards are interesting. They drive conversation. They make games of magic interesting. And for all the complaints about how dominant they are in legacy and modern, name me the last time I cared somebody was playing Jund in modern. The fact that this card, these cards, get me interested in playing fair interactive magic, I'm on board with. And I know that's a controversial take. I know these cards are everywhere. I know there's a lot of them going around and we're going to get really tired of seeing these mirrors all the time. But the thing is, we won't see these mirrors all the time. They're fun and interesting right now. And then eventually there's going to be more of an incentive for breaking the format, trying to play the games as quickly as possible, trying to play as many non-games against opponents as possible. And we're going to see a return to the relative normalcy, at least for modern. Legacy, I don't know. I don't know enough about Legacy. I haven't played enough of it. I can't... Like, if they have to ban Yorian and or Luris in Legacy, I think I can live with that. I think that's something I'm fine with. As far as the cards go in Pioneer, like... I'm interested in the fact that more and more fair decks are popping up. Like, the ability to play a Jund deck in Pioneer and not get laughed out of the event hall, that's appealing to me. The fact that we can do anything else. Like, we don't have to play, like, two months ago, not even two months ago, like a, a month ago, the conversation driving Pioneer was... Do we need to ban Underworld Breach and Inverter of Truth? And or Thassa's Oracle and or Jace Wielder Mysteries and or Dig Through Time. What are we talking about now? Whether or not we need to ban Luris because these weird fair decks are too good. Like, you... We'll, we'll get to it in a minute as far as, like, how these cards are used, but... Suffice it to say, you can't use these cards in literally every deck. They're not Phyrexian mana cards. They're not... Um, they're not, you know, unreasonably splashy artifacts and fast mana, stuff like Chrome Mox. They're just interesting cards that, for some of them, the deck building cost is not as high as it might have seemed. Some, like, Luris seems to trick you into building better decks. Certainly has me so far. It's like my decks feel smoother with Luris's companion. 
but even even going beyond that like just the idea of building your deck to maximize the value of your cards is something that i'm heavily in favor of both the financial value getting to play more games of magic and interact more with your opponent along the way and play fair games and try to win that way is something i'm here for but even just getting to build new and interesting things things i haven't considered before things i've considered before but now get a real shot in the arm from access to this kind of card and effect i'm here for that so with that in mind let's slide over into the fast lane and i want to talk about a deck that utilizes a companion and that deck is just guy heroic in standard because this deck is super sweet i don't want to talk about yorian fires i don't want to talk about karuga fires I don't want to talk about Yorian Ramp decks. I don't want to talk about Obosh Sacrifice. I don't want to talk about Lurus Sacrifice because, frankly, I think this is the best Lurus deck in Standard that's been discovered so far, and it's the one that kind of pushes the idea the card brings to the table to the to its to its maximum. Jeskai Heroic is very much a deck that can compete without access to Luris, but Luris helps cover the issues that the deck would otherwise have. So to give everybody an idea, the deck typically plays somewhere around, what is it, 4, 8, 9, 10, somewhere around 10 creatures, 12 creatures. I genuinely cannot remember how many creatures the, the actual list plays. I know it's... Uh, Four copies each of 10th District Legionnaire, which for those of you who don't know is a red and a white for a 2-2. Haste, whenever it becomes a target of a spell or an ability. Whenever it becomes a target of a spell, you control, put a plus one, plus one counter on it and scry one. Sprite Dragon, four copies. Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, put a plus one, plus one counter on it and it has uh, flying and haste, one, one for a blue and a red. Both these cards are fantastic for this style of deck. And then I think rounding out the creature suite of the list that I've been playing is, I, I genuinely can't remember if it's two or three. I think it's two copies of uh, Mischievous Chimera, which is when you cast your first spell on your opponent's turn, deal one damage to your opponent and draw a card. Or maybe it's deal one damage and scry one, that's what it is. Well, notably, because we're playing Luris, we can't play normal tempo-oriented haymakers like Brazen Borrower, like uh, Bone Crusher Giant, like, you know, we don't get to play the Is It Flash deck with Luris. We just can't do it. That's, that's not what we're doing here. Uh, when it comes to how this deck is constructed, we're looking to kind of go tall. In a world where everybody else seems to want to go really, really wide, and then try to start going taller later in the game. This deck wants to go tall from the word go. Your creatures are planning to be large, very large, and one might even say in charge. Uh, Sprite Dragon and 10th District Legionnaire both get very, very, very big. To see one or both of them upwards of eight power is not unheard of especially in matchups where removal isn't a common occurrence. Regarding how we're getting them there, well, we've got a combination of cheap cantrips and auras and spells that 
kind of fill both roles. So a really good example is the card Staggering Insight. Because every good protect the queen strategy needs a curious obsession. And this curious obsession helps you race because it it takes original curious obsession, removes the negative drawback for not attacking or blowing itself up. And tacks on the positive contribution of a lifelink for an extra one. But you get plus one, plus one, whenever this creature deals combat damage to a player, draw a card, and lifelink. So, casting turn two Sprite Dragon or 10th District Legionnaire into turn three Staggering Insight, leaving up mana for your protection spells. There's two in particular you can play depending on how far down the Aura's rabbit hole you go. One, <clears throat> excuse me. One you definitely play regardless, and then the other you play maybe. Depends on how far down the Aura's rabbit hole you want to go. But if you can curve one of your powerful two drops, your uh, 10th District Legionnaire or Sprite Dragon, into your turn three Staggering Insight, leaving up a protection spell, that's where you want to live. That's what you're after. That's what you're trying to do. Because you get double pumped. You know, 10th District Legionnaire becomes a 4-4 in that scenario. Uh, Sprite Dragon becomes a 3-3 fly. With lifelink and drawing you a card every time it connects. It's obviously infinitely better on the Sprite Dragon versus the, the other. Notably, this deck transitions in an interesting manner to Pioneer 2 depending on how far you go into auras, because you also gain access to young pyromancer. But sticking with the standard version, your protection spell, the, the ace in the hole, the best one of the two, is fight as one for a white mana, just a single white mana, which, I mean, literally like 12 episodes ago, I was complaining that I would never sleeve up basic planes, and here I am talking about sleeving up two of them, so... Thank you, Watsy, for listening, whether you did or not. Fight as one gives target human you control plus one plus one and indestructible until end of turn. And or target non-human you control plus one plus one and indestructible until end of turn. You choose one or both. Notably, 10th District Legionnaire is a human. Lurus, Mischievous Chimera, and Sprite Dragon are all non-humans. So you will occasionally get the blowout against Shatter the Sky or Storm's Wrath where you just jam that into their uh, board wipe and none of your stuff dies. Like you have a board that is 10th District Legionnaire Sprite Dragon. They have the board wipe and it doesn't matter because they don't die. They both get indestructible. Now they're both bigger because you target the 10th district and you cast a non-creature spell. Like, ew. Ew. Also, you scry one because why wouldn't you want deck filtering while you're at it? But the deck is really, really sweet. And then uh, beyond that, the other aura that tends to see a fair amount of play in the deck is Sentinel's Eyes. Because it's an aura that can be recast from the graveyard without any help from Lurus. You can uh, escape it. It already has escape. 
rounding out your uh, non-creature spell suite, you have cards like Defiant Strike, which is great with Tenth District Legionnaire and Spry Dragon on the battlefield because you can target the Tenth District Legionnaire to give it the plus one plus zero oh, and draw a card. It'll get a plus one plus one counter and scry before you draw. And then if you have the Sprite Dragon or the Mischievous Chimera, you get the bonus point of damage. Either by putting a 1-1 one, one counter on the Sprite Dragon or by pinging your opponent for one with the Mischievous Chimera during their turn. Either way. Maybe you even scry an additional time. Because bananas. But... Rounding it out, we have cards like uh, Opt that help fix mana. And then I believe the last non-creature spell is Mystical Dispute. Don't quote me on that. I, I don't have the list in front of me, and I'm kind of driving down the road. I am not about to pull it up right now. But uh, land-wise, we play 18. We play all 12 Shocklands, 4 Sacred Foundry, 4 Isle Fountain, 4 uh, Steam Vents. And then six basics. So this kind of falls in line with what I was talking about when I said I wanted to do an emphasis on budget decks that are a little bit different from the mold. Because this is a deck where if you've invested in your ability to get lands, this deck is unreasonably cheap. Like if you already have the lands, this deck can be built for the cost of Luris. And then everything else is pennies. At least for now. If it ends up being a really, really good choice, that may change. But for now, if you've got your lands and you can you can stomach the price tag on Luris, and you should because Luris is going to be one of those cards where if it's not banned in like Pioneer or Modern, it's going to be one of those cards you can slot into a ton of different decks. So it's not a card, it's it's the kind of card that I like to invest in. You know, the companions are, that's kind of bleeding into the, the opening topic on the companions themselves. The companions are fantastic investments as long as they don't end up banned because of the way they let you build decks. You can build a lot of different decks with the same companion. You can build the same deck with different companions. They're very versatile. To a point. Like, Obosh is pretty straightforward. You want to deal a ton of damage, and uh, Obosh is going to help you do it by making your stuff deal more. So, that wraps up our fast lane segment. Let's get over, let's slow things down, and let's talk what it means to build a deck with a companion because I, for me there are there are some levels to it first and foremost let's again mention let's reiterate what the companions are not they are not the same as the similar cards that were used in hearthstone they do not give you a bonus at the beginning of the game beyond being functionally an extra card in your hand is that a big bonus yes being able to mulligan a little bit more aggressively and still have access to another spell to help round out your curve. Having access to something when your opponent rips your hand apart with discard spells and cards like Thought Distortion. All of these are fantastic points in favor of the companions. 
And level one for me of deck building with companions is what decks like Blue White Control did in Pioneer. Notably, Blue White Control and Pioneer usually does not play creatures. You are winning with Gideon of the Trials. You are winning with... Uh, oh, what is it? What is it? What is it? You, know, you are winning by uh, Teferi Tucking. You are winning Approach to the Second Sun, whatever the case may be. However your deck is constructed, you are usually not looking to a creature to win the game, or if you are, it's something like a Dream Trawler, which is like the only creature you play, at which point you still satisfy the deck-building conditions of a card like Kahira, the green-white companion, who wants all of your creatures in the deck to be a type. I believe it's elemental, cat, dinosaur, or beast, or serpent. I, I genuinely cannot remember all the types that are listed on that card. As long as all your creatures are a type listed on that card, it pays you off by giving you access to a three drop from your sideboard with which to chump block and or uh, just have a threat to close the game out once, they, once you start to pull ahead. By comparison, like uh, Gigantha is another one that we, I see a ton of that people just play as a 5-4. Because the, the cost of playing it is generally pretty much free in the decks that want it. It's a card where if you if your deck has no cards that have multiples of the same mana symbol in them, it can be your companion. So that just gives you a free 5-drop five 5-4 five in your hand. Uh, Fires of Invention with Karuga was another one of these. The only thing the Fires deck had to cut to make Karuga their companion was cards like Shimmer of Possibility and Lava Coil, which just tricked them into being a better kind of tap-out control mid-range deck because it just made more room in their deck for board wipes. So, like, even the Planeswalker-centric version, you could argue the Planeswalker-centric version is better if you want to maximize Karuga's value because you're more likely to have permanence in play before turn five. So, level one is the idea of putting a companion into your... The only thing the companion costs you is a sideboard slot. You know... Decks that are decks that are going to do the same thing they did before they got the companion. The companion just adds an extra card to their hand and sometimes, you know, helps cover for a weakness. Helps fill out a slot in the curve. Whatever the case may be. Like, Karuga is great in the Fires deck because it allows you with, like, a Teferi, a Banishing Light, and an Elspeth Conqueror's Death on the table. You can still just draw three cards and keep going. Find your fires. You can find your gas. You can find your way to close the game out. But even in blue, I control like just having access to a three-two. It's not nothing. The next step, the next level of deck building when it comes to companions is what I like to call 
the fair version. And I think that's where most of us are right now. It's definitely where I'm living at the moment. And this is where you have your Luris decks, your, <clears throat> your Yorian decks, your, um, like the all-in cat tribal Kahira decks, the uh, Umori, the, the green-black one. These are the decks that, while technically built around them in the sense that you're actually having to make some deck-building concessions in order to play them, at the end of the day, what you're really doing is kind of skewing your deck in order to take full advantage of your companion's wall of text in a way that generates, like, card advantage. Yorian, by design, just does this. There's not really anything truly and utterly broken to do with Yorian, which... I mean, frankly, that's what makes it so good in standard, right? Standard decks are very rarely completely broken so much as they are decks that just get way more value than everybody else. That's kind of what the Yorian decks feel like they do. It's really good. Like, level one for Luris would be playing it in a spellless deck as a 3-2 lifelinker. Or a permanent free deck where you're... Or you know, something that wants to win in Pioneer with something like Bitter Blossom or something in Standard with Dreadhorde Invasion, and you're playing it as a 3-2 lifelinker with the ability to buy back your win condition. That's level one with Luris. Level two with Luris is like jamming, you know, changing from the Planeswalker-centric version of blue-black board control that I had to going back to the old creature version because Luris provides in instant value. Which is to say, Luris on turn five, buying back Augur of Bolas that chump blocked on turn four, or that died to, that died to my turn four ritual of soot. Like Luris into Augur of Bolas to find another removal spell. Now you're getting two cards off your Luris immediately, and it's it's value. You know, Yorian comes in and blinks fires of invention so that I can cast another spell. Or two is pretty like. Cast the Cavalier, then then cast the Lurus as your second, or not the Lurus, the Yorian, as your second spell to blink out the Fires of Invention so that you can then use your mana to cast your third spell. That's really powerful. And unlike Karuga, doesn't force you to cut your interactive elements early in the game. But at the end of the day, it's just a value thing. It's It's trying to better maximize what the companion offers the strategy you're playing. You know, Luris sacrifice decks are like this. They want to treat Luris as a four drop that always brings back a creature. Or a witch's oven that got blown up by an ember shield break. Or, you know, you're looking at the Obosh sacrifice deck. You want to be able to cast Obosh and then have this unreasonably productive turn with Cauldron Familiar and Witches of it, a Mayhem Devil. And the cost of doing that is getting rid of access to cards like Robber of the Rich and, uh, you know, you remove access to cards like Robber of the Rich and what, what in the world is it called? Uh, Priest of the Forgotten Gods. But in exchange, you gain access to this really powerful combo element that really kind of digs what your deck is mainly about.
you know, Umori as the companion for Teamer Elementals is another really powerful one because it makes your all your creatures cost less. When all your creatures cost less, the Elementals deck gets bananas. B-A-N-A-N-A-S. It is bananas. This stuff is insane. Like Omnath Locus of Mana, or not Omnath Locus, Locus of the Royal, costing three mana to do a whole bunch of nonsense. That's really good. Um, what is it? What is it? What is it? Uh, Cavalier of uh, Cavalier of Thorns, Cavalier of Gales, Cavalier of Flame, all of them costing four mana. Really, really powerful. Uh, Risen Reef costing two mana. You just end up amassing this gigantic board by really buying into what your companion is selling. By taking full advantage, making some deck building concessions along the way. Like, Teamer Elementals is a deck that really likes to play Growth Spiral so that it can play Omneth a turn early. And or make sure it hits the land drop in order to, like, casting Growth Spiral on two into, into Risen Reef on three into Cavalier of Thorns on four is precisely where you want to be. And I hear an emergency vehicle that I'm going to continue not moving for. So, when it comes to uh, level two deck building, this is like where most magic players like to live. This is mid-range gameplay, right? This is the, the non-linear space. This is where you're just trying to, you know, maximize this, the, the number of cards your opponent loses to the number of cards you lose. This is the, the you know, textbook value style deck building. And a lot of people are here for it. And that's what makes these companions so ubiquitous right now. But we haven't really touched on level three yet. Level three is where things get really interesting. Because level three is what happens when you buy so far in on the companion that you are paid off in more than just like bits and pieces of raw card advantage. A really good example would be something like uh, Obosh in a Rakdos deck, where you're playing like Knight of the Ebon Legion. Uh, was it Knight of the Ebon Legion? You're playing cards like uh, trying to trying to remember uh, Rotting Regisar. You're playing Gutter Bones, and what your goal is to do is to have a bunch of permanents on the table so that when you cast Obosh on turn five, your opponent dies. That is the end result you're hoping for. You're not hoping to like do a couple of cool things, maybe start to pull ahead a little bit. No, you want to Obosh and swing for lethal from an unreasonably high life total. That is what you are here for when you're buying all the way in. This isn't Luris buys back Mishra's bobble, which is good. It's value. You know, 
But at the end of the day, Luris buying back Mishra's bobble is a rogue refiner. Rogue refiner was ubiquitous, but it wasn't broken. It was just a card that provided a little bit more value than a lot of what everybody else was doing. What's going to get companions banned is if we go in hard on them. You know, Obosh sacrifice is like the tip of the iceberg. Obosh gruel, where you're like mono pelt collectors and bone crusher giants. And yeah, the, the biggest sacrifice to make there is you lose questing beast Embercleave. But you pick up Obosh and maybe Skargan Hellkite and you can... Uh, this is a deck that is infinitely more powerful in Pioneer than it is in Standard because you can play like Goblin Rabble Master. And when you play Goblin Rabble Master and Legion War Boss on turn three and four, and then you jam Obosh on five and you declare attacks and put your mentor trigger on, and then your, uh, your War Boss cracks in for four, your. Uh, your tokens all crack in for, you know, two and three. Well, your tokens all crack in for one and two, respectively, because they're even cost. But then your Rabble Master gets plus like seven and cracks in for 14. That's a big deal. The value you gain from the companion is killing your opponent. And as we've said on this show and others have said on many other shows... There is no substitute for the virtual card advantage of killing your opponent. And that's where I think the companions have to go if we really, like if the the end goal for the player base is to remove this supposed blight from the game, that's where we've got to go. Three twos for three that draw a card are not broken. Killing your opponent with a bunch of trample creatures on turn four from 30 life is pretty broken. Uh, another really like Umori buying. Umori is the closest one I can think of where the way you want to maximize the card is the kind of thing that lends itself to the most broken of decks. And it got me thinking like, Umori Goblins in Pioneer might be a really interesting way to try to push this. The idea that you already want to play mostly creatures in your Goblins deck anyway. And if you really look at the history of Magic, we have most of the good Goblins in Pioneer. We have Pile Driver. We have Skirt Prospector. We have War Chief. We have, uh, what's his name? Uh, Siege Gang Commander. We have... Uh, ringleader and then we have Grumgully the Generous to make them all bigger oh but by the way Umori in conjunction with Warchief also just makes your cards unreasonably cheap come on and we have Reckless Bushwhacker you know, Umori with the no, I guess the Bushwhacker deck's probably not a good home for it, right? Although in that deck, the only non-creature spells we're playing are like Atarka's Command. Maybe it's just a free eighth card that also just sometimes makes our deck broken.
because we can burning tree emissary and then cast like a robber of the rich and uh, another creature and then just grow our stuff exponentially. But the idea of going down this rabbit hole, when, when you want to go down the level three deck building rabbit hole, you are not searching for little bits and pieces of value. What you're searching for is the linear aspect. The idea of going so far in on what this card does that your deck arguably functions like subpar compared to playing magic from other decks if it doesn't work. But when it does work because this card is functionally always in your hand, it feels like your cards are just better than theirs. I don't know that we'll ever get to a point where enough companions are that way that like they end up getting banned or enough decks are capable of being built that way that they end up getting banned. But at the end of the day, they are a fun, interesting conversation piece for the game. I personally do not have a problem with them. Now, I preface that, or I, I follow that statement up. Again, I don't play GPs. I, you know, I might get to go to one a year. I don't play a lot of PTQs. I might get to go to one to two a year, assuming we ever get to have any more this year. Kind of feel like I should have gone to some of them earlier on now that we may not have anymore. Uh, I don't get to play SCG Opens. They don't come close enough around here for me to go to. And I don't know enough people to be able to justify making the trip and shelling out that expense in order to go like O2 and drop. You know, I, I am automatically qualified for side events at SCG Opens right now because I would have to, I would have to shovel out for uh, lodging anyway. I don't know anybody. Like, I know there's network co-stars, but I don't want to try to rely on the kindness of people who've never actually met me face-to-face. -face. So at the end of the day, like, I, my opinion when it comes to what these cards mean for competitive magic is a little skewed because most of my competitive magic experience is going to be at my local game store or someone else's local game store. But personally, I like them. They're interesting. They're exciting. I've always been a deck builder more than I am a player. I've always enjoyed building decks, and then when I get to play them, I'm like, I like to refer to it at work as company average. Skill level sits somewhere just below the middle. <laughs> so I've always enjoyed playing the game as an experience and the deck building is where I like to try to get my edges, try to come up with something, you know, try to try to put a little bit of an angle on the format. That's always been something I've always enjoyed partially due to budget constraints, mostly due to the fact that that's what I just enjoy doing. You know, even when I had the best deck in the format and team or energy, I was constantly innovating. I was trying stuff out. I was playing with sideboard plans. I was tuning. I was tweaking. I was going a little bit against the grain. All other decks were trying to fight over who could go bigger. I was curving down and playing counter spells in my mid-range green deck. Like, that's the kind of stuff I like. And companions ask me to do that every time I want to play them. And I'm here for that. So... Are companions good? So far, the verdict seems to be some of them. 
Our companions broken? I would say so far the verdict seems to be not really. You know, when a card is good enough to make Jund good, yeah, it's probably pretty good, but I'm just excited that people are playing Jund again because it means I get to play more games of Magic when I sit down to play Modern instead of dying to infect and storm on turn three. Like, opponents getting to... I just, it's it's what magic is for me. I want to play as many turns and tournaments, as many turns and rounds as I can. And if companions are drawing people to decks that play longer, more interactive games of magic, I'm here for it. Are they probably too good in older formats? Yes. But I don't know if that's an indictment on the companions themselves or if that's an indictment on the way deck building has been done in those eternal formats for the last little while. The fact of the matter is the average modern deck wants to ignore its opponent as much as possible. Even the more mid-range ones like Death Shadow. You're still just kind of trying to make sure they don't do anything too threatening until you can ignore them and kill them. At the end of the day, I'm here for more interactive magic. I'm here for more interesting decks. I like seeing how people use these cards. And I like seeing innovation. So, for all the negative press the companions have gotten, for all the unreasonable amount of hype that they're getting in Arena right now with everyone playing you know, Yorian or Karuga or Luris or Obosh or whatever. Three weeks ago, we were complaining that everybody was playing Uro and Growth Spiral and Nissa. At least it's a new card. At least it's something different. I can live with that. So that's all I have for this week, everybody. Uh, I hope you will not think worse of me and change your deck constructions and take me away from being your companion. But if you have questions, comments, concerns, send them to me. I'm on Twitter. I'm at HomewardPathMTG. On Facebook, my name is Adam Spain. On uh, Facebook, we have a group for the show called the Homeward Pathfinders. Submit a request to join. We will. Someone will approve you at some point, more than likely. Uh, if you're a patron of the show, you gain access to the Discord. Uh, at $1 per month, you get access to having your deck profiled for the fast lane at $3 per month. And you get to help me write an episode at $5 a month that will have your name all over it. So if you want to do that, if you like what I'm doing enough to help me keep doing it, patreon.com slash homeworkpathmtg. While you're browsing the web, while you're perusing, head over to our sponsor, Pure MTGO. It is the largest collection of quality magic content i found on the web it's great everybody's doing good stuff i like it while you're at it head over to the the network site let them know you love them constructedcriticism.com check content out it's fantastic do it do it do it do it do it do it can't recommend it highly enough and now that we got through all of that it's time for my favorite segment week in and week out that we haven't been able to do for the last couple of weeks because frankly we just haven't had them uh and before i go into hashtag mtg dad jokes this week i would like to point out uh 
Uh, I would like to extend a thank you to uh, Jeremy Noel. There was a little bit of uh, I, I don't I don't I don't have a good word for it. There was a little bit of a a mishap regarding naming of a series. Uh, notably, Jeremy was doing a series on Twitch with uh, special guests where they were playing Paper Commander through Twitch, and unfortunately, he was calling it Homeward Path. And I didn't notice it until they were in the middle of episode three, and I saw the the Twitch ad that he put up on on Twitter, and I said, "This is awkward." And to his credit, there was no, there was no argument. There was no, there, there was nothing negative about the experience other than the feeling I had when I had to send a message to him and be like, Hey, I don't know if you knew, but I exist, which is kind of an awkward thing to have to send anybody, right? But I want to thank you, Jeremy, from the bottom of my heart for being cool about it, for, you know, just rolling with it, not making it, not making it into a thing. You know, lesser people definitely exist on the internet. You know, it would have been really easy for someone in, in his position to say, well, I know you've done all these episodes and I know you've been working on this, but frankly, nobody, you know. I'm getting the views, so I'm keeping my name. You're going to have to change yours. So I appreciate you not being that person. I know that sounds like a low bar to set, like, oh, thank you for not being, thank you for not being mean, but in my experience in dealing with, with most internet personalities, that's exactly what I get. So thank you for changing that experience for me. Thank you for being so understanding, and thank you for your understanding of the situation. But now it's time. We haven't done it in two weeks or two episodes, rather. It's time for hashtag MTG dad jokes. I was hoping to get some of these in before last week, but we got one of them in just barely under the wire. The first one, Brian Canada says, super disappointed. I don't know why it took me this long to realize which is not a creature type in magic. I really wanted that deck. Now, you know, Brian Brian being the person who plays Commander as his format of choice. It's his primary experience for Magic. He's built an unhealthy amount of decks. Uh, 562 and counting as of the last time I checked in on him. So the joke was, I really wanted that deck. You know what I'm talking about. 99 problems, but a witch ain't one. <laughs> I'm in. I'm in on it. We need to make it happen. Need to see if they technically are in uh, one of the unsets. Technically, if they are in an unset, they are in, in Magic's history. So a changeling could have the creature type of witch. Bear that in mind. Uh, next up is from Dev at Strictly Better MTG. Said petition to start calling Stone Coil Serpent, Stone Coil Steve Austin. It definitely needs to be accompanied by the sound of glass breaking every time it enters the battlefield. If that if that ends up being the common usage in the lexicon. And last but not least, we have uh, oh come on, where'd it go? It's not pulling up. There it is. 
Uh, Jamie Gonzalez or at Turn One Serum Visions, courtesy of Drake Saucer. And it's a screenshot from MTGO. And it says, Senpai Me is being attacked by Dragon Lord Kolagon, Garuda, 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 and uh, Garuda. And it says, I feel attacked. I would definitely say you are. You have definitely been attacked. So, <laughs> I enjoyed that joke. I don't care if you did or not. That was fun. So, that's all I've got for this week, everybody. Thanks again. Again, I hope you are willing to give companions a chance. Let them, you know, flex your deck building muscles a little bit. Get outside your normal comfort zone. I know I have with this, and it has been an interesting experience. It's taught me a lot. Mostly about what not to do, but that's one of the things we learn. That's one of the ways we learn. So, I'll be back next week, hopefully. Uh, and we're going to, you know, I've got something to, I'm sowing the seeds of something special here in a few weeks. So just keep an ear to the ground or the internet or the, you know what I'm talking about. Keep an ear out and I'll leave you with my traditional sign off every week. Remember, everybody's going through tough times. You never know what somebody else is going through. So when it comes to interacting with people, the 12th doctor comes to us with the best words of advice I can offer. Never be cruel. Never be cowardly. Remember that hate is always foolish. Love is always wise. Always try to be nice, but never fail to be kind. So go forth, play magic, be kind, and we'll catch you next week.